What does solidarity mean to you? The word solidarity. Working together. Working together. You are absolutely right. I'm proud to be here in this moment with my co-workers at REI Soho as part of the new wave of unionization efforts that's sweeping the nation. Unions have always been involved in both parties. I've supported both parties. And AFGE will campaign for any candidate that supports our issues. Why are we asking Giovanni this? Because Giovanni has the power to change this because Giovanni buys the products. People knew who the representatives were and people knew who was actually behind the scenes and it was the CTM. Colombia was by far the most deadly country in the world for human rights defenders last year. HR is not your friend. Indeed, they're not. One of the things I love about the show is that we actually get to make fun of all of the people and their dumb answers on the show. You're listening to the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. On today's show, we hear a different voice from the nearly year-long warrior met coal strike, that of a six-year-old miner's daughter on the Heartland Labor Forum. Next up, we'll hear from a couple of new network members on the Baltimore Labor Report, REI workers in New York City organize a union. And on the AFGE Young podcast, how being a federal employee affects AFG members politically, what they can and cannot do. Then, Crispin Hernandez of Workers Central of Central New York updates the For a Better World podcast about the campaign to lower the threshold for overtime for farmers. We've got two international labor reports today. From the Solidarity Center podcast, how workers defied the odds to form a democratic union at the GM plant in Salao, Mexico. And on work stoppage, the difficulties of labor organizing in Colombia. Where did the idea of a human resources department originate? And why does it seem to always favor the employer? We find out from the Million Dollar Organizer podcast. We wrap up this week's show with a fascinating interview from the Third and Fairfax podcast as Weakest Link head writer Ann Slichter and writer Scott Salzberg talk about what it takes to put together a primetime network game show. I'm Chris Garlock, and that's all ahead on today's selection of highlights from the nearly 150 shows in the Labor Radio Podcast Network. If you like what you hear, and we hope you do, you'll find links to the entire programs in our show notes. And of course, you can find all 150 shows on our website, laborradionetwork.org. Here's the show. Welcome to the Heartland Labor Forum. This, I'm Judy Ansel. What's it like to be on strike for almost a year? How do you stay hopeful? How do you pay the bills? And what do you tell your kids? On tonight's show, we're going to interview Hayden Wright. She's the wife of a coal miner for Warrior Met Coal in Alabama and her daughter Avery on how to survive a strike and keep going. Uh, my name is Chris Mann. We have on our show tonight one of the busiest union women I've ever seen. She's Hayden Wright. 
She's the auxiliary president for District 20 locals 2245 and 2368 and is charged with supplemental feeding of, of over a thousand minors and their families on a weekly basis. Um, she also attends and helps to organize rallies, fundraisers, and um, is a full-time educator and has a family of her own. Her husband Braxton is a striking miner at Warrior Met Coal. We are so glad that she has made room for us tonight at the Heartland Labor Forum. We're doubly glad that tonight she's brought her daughter Avery with her um, to the show. Avery is seven years old, is into karate, and loves to read science. Warrior Met Miners in Brookwood, Alabama have been striking for, is it 334 days, Hayden, now? That's correct, yes. Okay, and why Why do you think the resolve is so strong for um, the miners to still be on, what issues are at stake? Well, the issues are ones that are really universal in all industries. We were working, we were providing labor for a company making millions of dollars to our, our families were the ones suffering. We were the ones going without seeing our spouses more than a few hours a day. We were the ones that took a $6 an hour pay cut. We were the ones that had people that were going into a dangerous situation because when your spouse works in the mines, you know every time they go underground that they might not come back. We know what methane does. Uh, my husband works at number five prep plant. Number five is where we had the major explosion right after 9-11 to where several union members were actually killed in that. We honor that and remember them every year. So I think the big thing is with the UMWA, we remember our history. We know that people thought to give us what we have now. Sorry. Yeah, no, that's okay. Um, hi, Avery. Can you tell us why your dad and the other miners are on strike right now? Uh, it's because of the unfair way. It's because they didn't pay enough money. To yeah, they didn't, didn't pay enough money and, and health care, too. So... Um, can you tell the people on the radio show, do you go to the rallies that, yes. that they have? How do, how do you feel there at the rallies when you go? Happy because I get to play with my friends. You get to play with your friends at the rally? And um, what does solidarity mean to you? The word solidarity. Um, to me it means Working together. Working together. You are absolutely right. Awesome. So where can people find the uh, website or whatever to contribute? And um, do you think it would be helpful if unions uh, send letters to the company to give you a just contract or... Um, yeah. No letters to the company are great. Um, just letters even to the district because Larry Spencer, the national vice president in District 20, if someone sends a letter of support, he reads those at the rally. So I mean that's a huge source of encouragement. Awesome. Yeah. To get those to hear that people are supporting. Them. 
Um, if you want to donate to the Strike Fund, you can just Google search or search in your browser. Um, UNWA Strike Fund 2021. It'll pull up that way. Or um, the Strike Pantry link is through PayPal. Um, you can look that up. UMWA Strike Pantry, it'll pull that way. Or I can drop a link later to all of you. But really just helping get the message out there, letting people know that they're heard and they're supported. Because, you know, we're in Alabama, it's a right to work state. Our local politicians, except for a few Democrats, have basically turned their backs on their constituents. So any bit of support is really appreciated. Awesome. Well, thank you for taking the time. Avery, thank you. Thank you. Bye. And thank you both for taking the time. You're a busy, wonderful union family. You have been listening to the Heartland Labor Forum, a show by and about workers, our workplaces, and our labor movement. We are radio that talks back to the boss, and you can talk back too. Send us your workplace stories, news, and ideas for shows to heartlandlaborforumkkfi at gmail.com. Our website, where we archive shows and post our upcoming schedule, is heartlandlaborforum.org. The views expressed on the Heartland Labor Forum are ours and not necessarily those of KKFI or any of the unions involved. Tune in every Thursday evening to the Heartland Labor Forum at 6 o'clock or to our Friday morning rebroadcast at 5 o'clock right here at 90.1 FM KKFI. The views and opinions expressed in this program do not reflect that of the IBW or Local 24. No regulations for those big companies. Let them do whatever they want. Because if they're rich, then you feel better. That's right. You can bask in their glow. Drive that accurate like it's a Benz. You've got a millionaire's fear. All 40 grand a year. You send your own job away. Then you cut your own fucking pay. You watch a rich man's news. You push a rich man's views. Oh, you hate the working stiff and his nasty union dues. You're listening to the Baltimore Labor Report with your hosts, Jack Powell and Mike Ayers. We have some other RWDSU news, and that is REI in Soho is now organized a union. That's excellent. Great for them. And yeah, for sure. I And I know we were talking about it on our last podcast about... Their union busting podcast. We listened to. Do we listen to any of it? I, I think. It yeah, we listened just, to it. Yeah, we listened to like little snippets here and there. It was that was the one that was hard to hear, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, I think so. Oh no, I think that was. Oh, that the, was the uh, Amazon one. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, they tried, and I think that they had pretty big turnout. I think it was like eighty-two percent of people voted yes in favor of yeah the local. Some, yeah, it was it was. I think 82, 82, 85, something like that. And I hope that 
it is just the same wave as what's happening with the Starbucks. Uh, it would be pretty incredible. Yeah. Yeah, here it is. Um, they voted uh, Wednesday with an 86% majority, according to the RWDSU. The Soho location became the first store with within the Seattle-based company to unionize. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. I'm proud for that. There's a quote from one of them. I'm proud to be here in this moment with my coworkers at REI Soho as part of the new wave of unionization efforts that is sweeping the nation. As members of the RWDSU, we know we will be able to harness our collective strength to advocate for more equitable, safe, and enriching work environment. Eloquently put. Yeah. Said Claire Chang, a member of the REI Soho Organizing committee and retail sales specialist visual at REI Soho. So that's a little update. Yeah, cool. I'm, I, hopefully, their negotiations go good. Yeah. I, well, we'll see. Uh, I, I, I guess at that point, the question I have is does REI now have to recognize the, the local? Do you know the procedures for that? So, if to my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, if they had 80% of cards signed or 86% of the cards signed without mailing them to the NLRB, yeah. um, voluntarily REI could recognize their union without going through the NLRB. Is that correct? Yeah, but I'm, I'm sure REI is not going to do that. <laughs> so now that the NLRB has conducted the vote that means that rei has no choice in whether to recognize their union or not right i mean according to the nlrb once your union has been certified and recognized the employer is required to bargain over your terms and conditions okay so this is a good like um first step for them i guess yeah well, um, once, yeah, they're recognized as a union now. So now, if you're a listener of the podcast, you can go to your local REI and start asking them about their unionizing efforts. <laughs> <laughs> Should do that everywhere, right? Any right. any store, you're because they're all the they're all the same, you know. Targets, WalMarts. Uh, hey, we just want to thank you for listening to this week's edition of the Baltimore Labor Report. As always, please do us a favor and like, subscribe, review, and share the podcast. Make sure you like and follow us on all of our social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube. Um, You can contact us through our email on our Facebook page or BaltimoreLaborReport at gmail.com. Also, if you can, support us on our Patreon for as little as a dollar a month. And just a special thanks to Radio Crown for broadcasting the Baltimore Labor Report each and every Sunday at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time with a rebroadcast at Monday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Be sure to tune in next week for more Baltimore area labor news. And remember, the longer the picket line, the shorter the strike. Thanks for listening. America, we've been asleep too long. Feel the holes close, the loops right the wrong town. Fits me, Max.
Warning: This podcast should not be downloaded using government equipment, listened to during duty time, or sent to others using government equipment, because this podcast has the potential to suggest actions to be taken in support or against legislation. Do not use your government email address or government phone in contacting your lawmakers. Hello, and welcome to the AFGE Young Podcast. My name is Mitchell Word, and I am joined today by my co-host, Matthew Uchecker. Today, we are joined by Grant Schott, National Legislative Political Organizer, and Gilbert Gollum, the Young Coordinator for District 12. And today, we'll be discussing a new generation of politics. Um, Gilbert and Grant, you guys are both, I think, the most knowledgeable people that I know in this topic. So um, let's just get a little bit, dig, like jump right into it. So why is AFGE involved in politics, Grant? Grant? Yeah, well, we have a lot of members, of course, almost 300,000, but we need more activists at all levels, including uh, political activists to flex our, our, our muscle and raise our voice. Uh, federal, all unions are affected by, by Congress, but federal employees, of course, more directly by the decisions on Capitol Hill uh, in terms of staff and pay benefits, labor rights, etc. You know, just look at the those horrible executive orders of 2018, and those were devastating to our union and could have really, you know, ruined us if they'd gone on another four years. And I think you can argue members of Congress and the executive branch are like the board of directors for us. So we must lobby them constantly and support our allies. Okay. Yeah, the way that I usually try to explain it to people is, you know, we we work for the federal government, therefore members of Congress and the president are our bosses. And so we yeah. need to, you know, be reaching out to them, letting them know what's going on in our workplaces because otherwise they wouldn't know. And so that's why it's important for the union to be involved. Yeah, I think that, you know, most private sector jobs, you know, you just think about going down the office and going and talking to the big boss. Whereas, you know, with us as federal, like our boss is in D.C. <laughs> and so we've got to be a little bit more creative in, in reaching out to them and letting them know what's going on, because otherwise they may not know. So. Oh, yeah, that's totally right. Or we're each other's bosses <laughs> in this case. Yeah. So I guess the, the next question that, you know, pops up quite a bit is, okay, so because, you know, the union, you know, is so involved in politics and stuff like that, and, you know, we're always lobbying for or against candidates or for, for a particular uh, piece of legislation or something like that, does that mean that AFGE also affiliates itself with a particular political party? AFG is nonpartisan. Uh, that's like the greatest misconception. The greatest misconception about AFGE is that we align with so, with some certain party. Uh, everybody thinks that we align with Democrats because we're a union, and for some reason, unions have been associated with uh, with Democrats, and that's totally not true. Unions have always been involved in both parties, has supported both parties, and AFGE will campaign for all, any candidate that supports our issues. I know I've done it. It doesn't matter what's, it doesn't matter what party title is in front of their name. Um, we've we've mentioned a couple of times, like, hey, we can't talk about this, you know, because of you know Hatch Act and different things. 
Grant, do you want to maybe touch just a little bit about what is the Hatch Act and why we can't talk about particular things on this podcast? Yeah, so the the Hatch Act, you go back to, you know, the, the corruption, like the 1800s, for example, you had the, the machines that did a lot of good stuff, but they were corrupt too, and, and you know, the term patronage. So your your political action was tied to your job. And some cities like Chicago maybe still do that or, you know, through the sixties, like Mayor Daly's machine, you, the better, the more you, you recruited and is a, like a precinct captain, the, the more pay you'd get for your job. And a lot of people were afraid even to, to vote. And they, I mean, they could, feds could vote, federal employees could vote, but they couldn't, they couldn't be active politically, couldn't donate to candidates. So Bill Clinton, I don't know. I think it was a bill. It might've been an executive order. I think it was a bill though. when he started in 93, that really liberalized it. So you can you can engage in any political activity again off off the clock, off public. You know, and make sure it's your personal property. So don't use a, a work cell phone or computer um, off site and out of uniform. So like with you know with TSOs, of course, that's an issue because you're you do wear uniforms. A lot of a lot of people don't, but some you know the law enforcement officers do. So off the clock, um, and you know, offsite, you can be you can be active. You can attend rallies. You can volunteer. You can donate to candidates. Uh, you can display a bumper sticker on your car, and you know, even at work, you just you can't wear a button to work, but your sticker on your car is okay. Lawn signs. You pretty much do anything, except you can't run for a, a federal office or partisan office. You can you can run for nonpartisan office like a school board. And you can't co-sponsor or you can't um, co-host a fundraiser, which not that many people do. But if you're really political, you know, so I, some member of Congress might say, oh, I'm having a, a fundraiser uh, targeting labor folks. Can I put your name on the invite list as a co-host? You can't do that. You can go to the fundraiser. You can donate. Um, but you, you just can't co-host it. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today and helping educate Matthew and myself and also all of our listeners. We really do appreciate it. Um, thank you to our guest, Grant Schatz, a national legislative political organizer, and Gilbert Gollum, the young coordinator for District 12. And thank you for listening to the AFGE Young Podcast. New episodes are made available every two weeks and are streamed everywhere you listen to your podcasts. This podcast is a production of the AFGE National Young Committee, Bug Bridging Union Gaps Initiative. To learn more about the AFGE Young Program, visit our website at www.afge.org young or our Facebook page by searching at Young AFGE. I'm Dana Geffner, Executive Director of Fair World Project. As we pick back up with our Unfair Dairy series, we're going to be talking about some of the people who have been left out of that hard-won law since the start. Farm workers. In this episode, Fairworld Project's Anna Canning is following up with Crispin Hernandez of the Worker Center of Central New York. In this episode, they'll be catching up on what's happening in the dairy barns of New York. Now that Chobani's Fair Trade Dairy has been on the shelf for nine months, what does that Fair Trade label mean for workers in practice? Hi, it's Anna. At the beginning of this series, I talked to Crispin about how his organizing with allies 
had upended old unjust laws that excluded farm workers from too many workplace protections, and how they'd won new laws granting farm workers organizing protections, minimum wage, and overtime pay. The week I spoke to Crispin, the wage board was taking public comment on the question of lowering the overtime threshold for farm workers to 40 hours per week. I asked Crispin to tell me more about the current status of the campaign. Nosotros tenemos comunicación directamente con los trabajadores. We are in direct communication with the workers and in the first place, we want to ask Giovanni to recognize the right to unionize of all the workers in their supply chain. This is our clear message to Giovanni. And what's happening now in New York State is something very historic. And we want Giovanni to support all agricultural workers in New York State, especially those who are in their supply chain. What about overtime? As workers want overtime after 40 hours of work, it's what we are asking the governor, the senators, and assemblies. They have the responsibility to protect all agricultural workers, just like other workers in other industries. What we are asking for is equality. Yesterday, we had a hearing and employers are saying that if we decrease the overtime requirement, the economy will go down. This is totally a lie. This is what they say before, when they passed New York's Farm Labor Fair Labor Practices Act. Now it's a law and we are living through a very intense pandemic and the workers continue working every day. Tensions around this hearing are running high. On the one side, farm employers are saying that reducing the threshold for overtime pay will drive them out of business and have dire consequences for the whole economy. And on the other side, worker advocates are calling for overtime pay at 40 hours, framing the question as a matter of fairness and equality for all working people. I want to add that what was happening at the hearing was that many workers couldn't be there because they are working. And many don't want to talk out of fear of retaliation by managers. And this is one of the important things. Also. Last night at the hearing, I heard people say that if they lower the overtime, that workers are going to go to other states. This is totally a lie. What we want is for the workers to work less and earn the same. Take more time with their families. Spend time with their kids. Send them to school to have time to get medical care. And take time to their health. This is very important in agricultural work. It's important work. But it's dangerous work, not just on dairy farms, but for all farm workers. It's very repetitive work and tiring. There are many reasons we want this. As I mentioned, but the most important thing here is our health. Because many workers who work more than 60 hours, many have to return to their home country. Not only from Central America, but also from other countries. And when they go, they return sick. So this is what we want the senators, assemblies, and the wage board to understand. This is the real change we are asking for. It's now been more than 80 years since farm workers were left out of workplace protections for others. The new law was passed in 2020, and now it's 2022, and we want a real change now. Now it's the time to do it, to recognize us and protect us workers. The arguments brought before the New York Wage Board 
closely reflect the arguments that have been made across the U.S. as a wave of farm worker organizing has won overtime protections for people working in the fields and barns of big agricultural states like California and Washington. People working lots of overtime have a 65% higher injury hazard rate, to use the terminology of the report. Other studies cited show higher rates of disease. In short, the data backs up what Dreesbin is saying. Meanwhile, across the country, similar threats are being made. Paying farm workers overtime for their long hours will force farmers out of business because they won't be able to make ends meet. If costs increase, companies will just find other places to buy, seek out new ingredients from places with lower wages. And that's why, as we talk, Trispin keeps coming back to the workers' demands of Chobani. ¿Y por qué estamos pidiendo Chobani esto? Ah, why are we asking Chobani this? Because Chobani has the power to change this because Chobani buys the products. That's to say that Chobani has the power to pay more for their milk, and then farmers can give a fair wage to our workers after 40 hours of work. It's an injustice that they say that we are essential workers but don't recognize us. I reached out to Chobani and to Fairtrade USA to see if they had anything to say about farm workers in Chobani's supply chains calling for lowering the threshold for paid overtime to 40 hours. Fairtrade USA's CEO, Paul Rice, sent a short note saying, thank you for the opportunity to comment. We are going to wait until a decision is rendered to make a comment. It's useful to note that when they rolled out the Fairtrade Dairy Standard, Fairtrade USA actually increased the standard work week to 60 hours per week for farm workers in the U.S. As of this recording, Chobani has yet to provide a comment. You've been listening to For a Better World, a podcast by Fairworld Project. Thank you for listening. Hello, sisters and brothers, and welcome to the Solidarity Center podcast, an interview show that highlights and celebrates the individuals working for labor rights, the freedom to form unions, and democracy across the globe. I'm your host, Shauna Bader-Blau. I'm also the executive director of the Solidarity Center in Washington, D.C. Thousands of workers in Mexico recently formed an independent union at a GM auto plant in Silao, which is in central Mexico. Their victory is an incredible milestone because they voted out a union that did not operate in the interest of workers. The union they threw out, the Workers' Confederation of Mexico, or CTM, is the country's largest confederation and runs what are called protection contracts. These agreements are worked out directly between companies and unions, usually without the knowledge of workers, so they don't legitimately represent them. This practice is corrupt and it's illegal, but up until now has been widespread in Mexico. Although GM is one of the biggest companies in a key Mexican industry, the workers in Silao had some of the lowest wages in Mexico's auto plants. By standing strong and demanding a democratically elected union, they showed it's possible to defeat a corrupt system. Here to tell us about this incredible achievement is Maria Alejandra Morales Reynoso. Alejandra was part of the struggle to form the independent union Cintia, the National Independent Union of Workers and Automotive Industry Workers Union. Alejandra last year became the first woman to lead Cintia, and we are so thrilled to have her with us today. A quick note on terminology before we begin. 
You'll hear Alejandra refer a few times to the treaty, which is the U.S.-Mexico-Canada Agreement, or USMCA. The USMCA includes worker rights, such as requiring that workers have input into collective bargaining agreements and workers have the right to form unions. Now, let's hear from Alejandra. Hi, my name is Maria Alejandra Morales Reynoso and I'm the General Secretary of Cintia, the Sindicato Independiente Nacional de Trabajadores y Trabajadores de la Industria Automobilística o Automotriz. I've been working for 11 years at the GM plant in Silao. It's a, it's a plant that has many sections, uh, transmissions, painting. I work in the painting uh, part of the plant, but they, uh, every, every section carries out a different function. And as workers, we had been aware of the problems that the company had. There were all kinds of irregularities, with the, uh, not only with the workers, but also with the actions they were taking, for example, um, with bathroom breaks or holidays or, you know, how long our days would be. Sometimes there were uh, making us work double shifts. And then in uh, April 2021, um, the union started pushing for a legitimization of the new working contract, the new uh, collective agreement, which us, because we already knew uh, that the information was being false, we knew that that was not true, and we told the workers so. We, we knew that they were pushing and uh, for the legitimization of this um, collective um, agreement, saying that if, we, if they didn't accept it, that they would lose their wages and their benefits. I've been working at the GM plant for 11 years, and uh, during my time uh, at the plant, I also uh, got my, my bachelor's in uh, business administ and administration. And I joined Generando Movimiento, which was one of the main, the first um, worker organization movements in GM in 2019, after the um, illegal firing of Israel Cervantes. This uh, opened, this was like a call to bring down the corruption that we had seen in the system, especially the corruption that we saw in CTM. And so um, the, the, new, uh, the new vote was postponed to August, which incidentally was also when we were recognized as a new union. And I was appointed the, sec the secretary general of said union. And um, that's when uh, we submitted a vote and the workers decided that they were not going to approve the new collective agreement. So we were able to present our, ourselves in front of the workers as a new independent union. And so after presenting ourselves as a new independent union, we had to we had to confront a new regime that was obviously backed by a, a union very much entrenched in the CTM, which had been uh, them under uh, they under Cronis had been uh, pretty much calling the shots. This allowed us to inform the workers what a new and independent union could do for them because we could bring them the support and the help they needed. And so um, on the 1st and 2nd of February, which were the days that the federal center had um, scheduled um, for the vote, the, uh, the whole plant of GM in Silao went to, went to vote and we obtained that great victory. We were elected with 76% of the votes. There was no margin for the other unions actually. And, and so we uh, started negotiating the new collective uh, the new collective bargaining agreement. 
So the unions, after they failed to push for the um, for the legitimization of the contract in August, the let's say that they divided themselves into three different unions that called themselves new or independent, but and they had very they proposed very similar measures to what we were proposing, but unlike us. People knew who the representatives were and people knew who was actually behind the scenes and it was the CTM. We faced several barriers, but um, I would say the main the main two would be on one hand that in GM, the minute that they heard that someone was trying to organize the workers, that person would be fired. And either the union itself or the company themselves would fire this person. And then the second would be actually the laws. CTM was always heavily favored by the law, so that didn't give us a lot of room to maneuver. Not a lot of once the uh, the approval of the new uh, treaty, um, we the, the new under the new uh, treaty, it was easier to create an independent union. So we were able to tell our coworkers, listen, by law now we can actually create an independent union, and not just the uh, the worker centrals that were allowed, you know, before. We find that we found out what our rights were, and then we talked about how to implement them, and we talked to the workers directly. And now, with the reform of the USMCA, it's easier now to actually elect a union that will represent you. I just wanted to say that uh, everybody's intervention, everybody's help, and especially the Solidarity Center support was uh, incredibly valuable to us in our fight, and we're just really, really grateful. Hey everyone, this is going to be a clip from our newest shop floor discussion, a Patreon exclusive. If you'd like to become a patron, go to patreon.com slash workstoppage. If you can't afford to become a patron, jump in the Discord and let us know. Uh, you can message one of us privately and we will give you access. But without further ado, enjoy the clip and solidarity forever. In this episode, we're going to be talking about Colombia, and we've talked about violence in Colombia on the show a few times before, but a recent article in People's Dispatch discussing the ongoing attacks on oppressed people there made it seem like a good idea to set aside some time for a more detailed discussion of it. Yeah, so we talked a lot last year about the violence that happened when there were protests in Colombia, but we didn't really get into the ongoing series of murders, assassinations, disappearances that has been mm -hmm. happening in Colombia for decades now at this point. Like just in the last two months, 33 environmentalists, land defenders, human rights defenders, like Afro-Colombians, indigenous folks, peasants, social leaders, and, and as well as union organizers have been assassinated in the country. Mm -hmm. And over 1,300 people have been murdered by armed groups in the country since just in the last, really the last five years since the November 2016 peace agreement between the Colombian government and the FARC or the, the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, the Marxist guerrilla group that was basically waging a low-level civil war against the Colombian government for decades. And so at, at the end of 2016, they had, came to a peace agreement to demobilize FARC, to have amnesty for FARC combatants, and to move into a like more within-the-system electoralist process. However, the thing is, 
since then, the violence from the state and from parastate entities have has only continued. Uh, Colombia was by far the most deadly country in the world for human rights defenders last year, with over 140 killed and targeted assassinations, which is three times as many as the next highest country when you, you track these sorts of things, which was sure, in Mexico. It, it's as many as the next five or six most dangerous countries put together for yeah. these types of organizers. Yeah. yeah. So like Colombia is a huge outlier here. Uh, I mean, and, and 140 last year is 40 less than were killed in 2020, where we had over 180 of these, you know, social leaders, defenders of, of various oppressed groups within the country. A lot of times like indigenous peasants are, are, are routinely targeted in this way. Um, and, and this is just the specific people who have been targeted for personal assassination. Like, there have been hundreds and hundreds of less discriminate attacks, like basically mass shootings in, in, in peasant villages or at, or at union organizations that are, but like literally this is hundreds and hundreds of people specifically targeted by these groups. Most of the time, these are, are carried out by groups of armed men, either storming into these people's homes uh, and executing them there or, or taking them away to be you know tortured and disappeared. Uh, and some of these have been more openly brazen where you'll have these groups of, of gunmen just bursting into community meetings and opening fire on, on the speakers. And these, and like this all, of course, I think to most of our listeners, it sound like pretty outrageous stuff for a country that isn't technically at war with anyone right now or in the, or in the, the stages of a civil war, especially since the end of the, the, the FARC uprising in 2016. And yet these attacks continue and are carried out with basically complete impunity. The, the state, uh, the Colombian government, as we've talked about in the past, which is run by Ivan Duque, who is a very, very far right figure who has long been essentially a puppet of the United States. Uh, he's been supported by, amongst others, Joe Biden for a very long time. And, you know, it's it's the classic thing we see in this when the people who are targeted in these sorts of attacks are members of the working class, members of the peasantry, just various like groups of oppressed folks. And so you get this response. And we see the same thing a lot in the U.S. when we see black people targeted by white supremacist groups, by the police, where we'll hear that, oh, well, we're investigating the killing, but we haven't found anything and nobody gets arrested. Nobody gets convicted. You'll have maybe every once in a while, there will be a particularly brazen one or somebody will actually, you know, fuck up and get caught by regular citizens. But, and, and they'll, they'll have these low level folks who will occasionally go to jail. But the vast majority of these instances, no one is ever held accountable. Uh, and, and just recently, like after on, on February 22nd, there were two peasant leaders who were murdered and the national agrarian coordinator, the, the CNA there, which is, you know, a group, of, uh, it's a peasant organization there condemned the murders as state violence saying, quote, once again, the dirty war of the Colombian state is raging against the peasantry of the CNA. A couple of days ago, on February 18th, the leaders had denounced the police and mayor of San Martin were threatening and harassing the peasant communities that were victims of violence and were acting hand in hand with landowner Wilmer Diaz.
It's the Million Dollar Organizer Show, tips for professional union organizers. Win more campaigns, balance work and family, and leave the competition in the dust. Now here's your host, Bob Odie. Hello, union organizers and future union organizers. Welcome to podcast episode number 51. Today's topic, HR is not your friend. If you've been organizing a while, no doubt you've heard some human resources horror stories. Non-union workers in every field bring us their accounts of trying to rectify grievances through the employer's HR department. Resolving issues at work through the employer's process is not easy. Human resource management is sort of an oxymoron for the organization is going to do everything they can to make this problem disappear. The term human resources first appeared in a book called Distribution of Wealth by John R. Commons way back in 1893. The term became popular in the 1960s as labor's grip on the workplace began to wane. It seems to equate humans as nothing more than another commodity to be managed by the organization, hence the term human resource management. Disciplinary actions, performance and absentee management, policies, systems, employee handbooks, all of these items fall under human resource management. Departments were created to address conflicts, management would say misunderstandings, between often unrepresented employees and their employers. It's a way to function without job stewards while keeping a tight grip on management's control over production. Sixty years later, it's become the norm for organizations to have an HR department. One thing to always remember when advising workers is to remind them, HR is not your friend. Indeed, they're not. No matter how kind and considerate the people working in the HR department may be, their ultimate loyalty often falls with the employer. The purpose of human resources is to protect the employer, not the workers. The employer has an unfair advantage. The scales are tipped in favor of the company, organization, shareholders, owners, supervisors, and their interests. Not only that, tricks are sometimes used to outwit workers into accepting meager settlements for what might otherwise be a huge payout, if only the worker had gotten a lawyer and filed a lawsuit. Sometimes they even get an unsuspecting individual to sign a non-disclosure agreement, so they can't even talk about it with anyone, not even a counselor or a psychiatrist. Is that messed up or what? A trend online recently was, hashtag go to HR, but a better one would be, hashtag go union. There's nothing quite like having a job steward, a collectively bargained contract, and access to the union's labor's attorneys as backup. Non-union workers just don't have the same support on the job. Employees need to understand there's no expectation of confidentiality when it comes to reporting anything to HR. In certain cases, employees are obligated to notify the employer through certain channels. Know what these are by familiarizing oneself with the employer's policies. So what can a person do to protect themselves? Put complaints in writing, save copies of any emails, take really good notes, read and understand before signing anything, and have a trusted coworker or family member as backup. Remember, HR is not your friend. Thanks for listening. We hope that you'll subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Give us a five-star review and let us know what you'd like to hear the Million Dollar Organizer talk about. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Union Organizer. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.
welcome to Third and Fairfax podcast. I'm Luciano Saber, and today I have the privilege of sitting down with the weakest link, head writers Ann Slichter and Scott Salzberg. Ann, Scott, welcome to Third and Fairfax podcast. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you so much. We're happy to be here. I watched The Weakest Link, and I, I have to say, I've always been a fan of Jane Lynch. She's awesome. Her comedic timing is just spot on all the time. And I wanted to ask you guys, do you write her jokes, or does she come up with them on the fly? How does that work? That's a great question, and one we are often asked. Jane is a mega talent. She's a pro through and through. She is very much part of the writing process. And what we do is we supply lots of material for her that she pours over and then she Mm -hmm. puts her signature on it and then she will add things. But as every, as just like a Stephen Colbert or Wanda Sykes, I think is guest hosting Jimmy Kimmel right now, you need writers to supply you with material because you can't, you, you need to, your brain is focused on hosting and acting and performing and following things you need an ex- you need extra hands to supply you with with material, but she's very much a part of the writing, and hopefully our staff is giving her what she needs, and she seems to enjoy it. One of the things I love about the show is that we actually get to make fun of all of the people and their dumb answers on the show. That's, that's, it's, it's so refreshing from working on these shows. It's so refreshing because we always like to encourage people on these shows and be friendly and everything. This one, we actually get a chance to go after people a little bit. That's what the show is built around. And we have fun with it. Jane has a lot of fun with it. And believe it or not, the contestants seem to have fun with it also. After there, it's, there's a lot of, a little bit of animosity going back and forth during the show, but I think they, afterward, that uh, you hear a lot of them come back and they're, they want to say hi to Jane because they're big fans of hers and they love getting skewered by her. It's all a lot of fun. How do you choose the questions? How do you select the contestants? And then also, I wanted to ask about the diversity of your staff. First of all, <laughs> when I was lucky enough to be offered this job, it was important to me. And gratefully, it was very important to Stuart Krause now, NBC and BBC, to have a staff that's inclusive. And I, mm-hmm. we have a very inclusive staff. We have all shapes and sizes and colors. We have LGBT represented. And not only is it the not only is it the 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 best thing to do in 2021, it's the smart thing to do if you're on a trivia show because you want questions from people's experience that's going to cover an inclusive cat inclusive. And what makes this show different than let's say it was 20 years ago is we're not probably going to do questions about Lou Hoover, the first lady. We're going to do questions that are more along the lines of obviously uh, someone like James Baldwin. If we do a flag question, we're going to do, we're going to cover Gilbert Baker, who of course created the pride flag. We want our viewers to feel like they're in, we're in 2021. We live, you know, in in an inclusive society. Let's see the questions reflected to that. Um, The other thing is that because of federal laws, we cannot really know too much about our contestants until the start time. We have a great contestant oh. coordinator named Angela Dean, who scours the country with her team, finding people that are unique and different and characters. Our questions are each group of questions is built in what we call a stack. And the stacks are basically an episode's worth of questions. But those stacks are always randomized before we shoot every day. So we don't know which one is going to go with which group of people. 
So the contestants are all randomized what order they're going to be in. The, the question stacks, the shows are randomized. So we don't know which show is going to go with which group of people. So we work really hard to make sure that everything is as randomized as possible. And then from our, from what Ann and I do, one of our big jobs is we arrange all the questions and we try to make sure that we have a huge, big variety of different topics, different difficulty levels. So we make sure that everything it's, it's, we like on this show to keep everybody on their toes. So they're getting a little bit of whiplash when they're out there. They're going to hear like a cartoon question first, and then they're going to hear something about James Baldwin next. And I will say that we are not out to get these people. We want everybody to answer and we design the questions so that they can be answerable. And my theory is always because I'm my hope and wish and dream is let's say let's say you're a bus person, meaning you bus tables for a living. You work at a diner and somebody leaves their USA today. If you're that person and you read the newspaper every day and you want to be on our show, maybe you almost graduated high school, but you didn't. We want you to be able to get these questions, meaning we pull from pop culture. But if you read news, if you're up on pop culture, if you know about Dua Lipa and Janet Yellen, then (laughs) then you probably have a shot. But we don't want this to be this is not something where we're going to be asking about Boethius or the wife of Bath. And do you know something about Dua Lipa and Janet Yellen? <laughs> Did I miss something in the news? They're they're recording. They're dropping a single. Oh, good. Okay, week. great. It's good. Okay, that's awesome, guys. Thank you so much for joining us on Third and Fairfax podcast, and congratulations on your careers, and your talent, and everything else. And thank you for sharing all this information with our members. I think this is this is very good information. And hopefully you never know, maybe because of this episode, maybe somebody's going to get a job and, and you work with them at some point. Let's make that happen. I'm all about get your friends good jobs and good boyfriends or girlfriends. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> thank you so much for having us. Luciano. Thanks so we much, really Luciano. We're honored to be here. Thank you. It was great. It was a lot of fun to talk to you today. That's it for this edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, our roundup of highlights from just a few of the nearly 150 labor radio shows and podcasts that make up the Labor Radio Podcast Network. We've got links to the shows you heard today in the show notes for this podcast. You'll find all the network shows at laborradionetwork.org, and you can also find them by using the hashtag LaborRadioPod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Labor Radio Podcast Weekly was edited by Patrick Dixon and Mel Smith. I produce the show, and our social media guru, as always, is Mr. Harold Phillips. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at LaborRadioNet. Find out more on our website, LaborRadioNetwork.org. For Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this has been Chris Garlock. Stay active and stay tuned to your local Labor Radio Podcast show. <laughs>